Okay, you're a middle school teacher. Here's a situation that apparently happens all the time. A kid walks into your classroom wearing a hat. There's a rule. Hats are not allowed in school. You tell him to take it off. He does. Ten minutes later, you're teaching. You look at the kid. He's wearing the hat again. Again, you tell him to take it off. This time he doesn't. And then he escalates the situation. He curses to himself. What do you do? Right then and there, I'd say, like, that response was not acceptable, and I won't tolerate that. Take off your hat and put it into your book bag. Serena Nickel in Connecticut says that usually works. You demand compliance. One of our producers, Hannah Jaffe-Walt, asked over a dozen middle school teachers. Jose Vilson in New York would have a very different response. Let's have a conversation. So, like, you're in the middle of teaching, and you would say, John, let's have a conversation about your hat? Yeah. Absolutely. Jeff Reamer says that the key is no conversation, no stopping instruction at all, as it gives the kid a demerit on the kid's weekly behavior report. If I'm saying, like, uh, like, ladies and gentlemen, today we are going to talk about three different styles of argumentation. John, right now you're choosing to earn a major deduction because you put the hat back on. Please take it off. We're choosing to learn about the three different types of argumentative styles, ethos, logos, and pathos. It'll be like that. Smooth, right? Jamie and Jacobs in Maine would not use any words at all. She'd give the kid a look. She'd do the whole thing in a look. If he doesn't take off the hat, one of my techniques is I take my shoe off and I chuck it. What? <laughs> you take your sh- wait. You take your yeah. shoe off. <laughs> like if I'm wearing clogs, I'd take off my shoe and I'd put it in my hand and I'd say, "Okay, take off the hat, or I'm going to chuck it." Like I'm going to chuck it at you. Well, they never know. But I've, I've thrown plenty of shoes, and kids love that, too. All across the country, across different schools and different states, when it comes to disciplining young people, teachers are winging it. In 19 states, are still allowed to hit kids if they think that'll work. Lots do. Hannah asked the teachers what they learned about controlling their classrooms and their teacher training programs. Most of them said, not much. There's this great book uh, that's out now by a reporter named Elizabeth Green about teacher training that says, incredibly, at some education schools, disciplining kids, managing your class, it's not even a subject on the curriculum. When you ask teachers, okay, so really, how did you learn to do that thing that you do, you know, with your voice, your face, your shoe? They often answer with a name, a kid's name. That kid taught me so much. I had had this one student, Alex, who... (laughs) <laughs> I, I tried everything. Well, his name was Jeff. Call her Z. I'll give her the name J. Yeah, J. We'll call him Johnny. We'll call him Johnny. Johnny and Z and Jeff and Alex are our nation's education school. These are the kids who were so hard to discipline that teachers just had to figure out what to do. So each teacher finds an approach that works for them. Does it work for the kids? Who knows? There's no clear answer. There's no best practice that educators agree on. Which is weird since, you know, this is where kids should be learning to control themselves and how to live with others in the world. It's so essential. This is so basic. And there are lots of educators out there who are convinced that the way that we do discipline isn't just ineffective. They think it's actively messing kids up. So today we're going to talk about schools, but not about you know, curriculum or testing or standards or any of the other stuff that people usually talk about on the radio and in the media when they talk about schools. Today, we're going to talk about discipline. Because, you know, you kind of have to nail discipline before you can do anything else in a classroom. 
Hannah Jaffe Walt has been looking into this for months. She has learned things are not going so great with discipline. And lots of educators and parents are asking, is this working? Is this the best we can do? From WBEC Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Act one, time out. Okay, so let's start the show about discipline in schools at the very beginning of a kid's school experience in preschool with kids so young that you would think, you know, it'd be pretty straightforward how to handle behavioral problems when they act up. Like, how bad can these kids be? And at this young age, this is where the question first emerges of whether the wrong kind of discipline in school will screw up a kid, maybe for years to come. Here's Hannah. JJ's conversational style is to tell you things he knows for sure. He's no fan of ambiguity. Sticks with the facts. He's five. He does not like salad. His new house is okay, but it does not have a pantry. He can spell the word loss. His mom has a belly because there's a baby in there. The baby will have brown skin, and he knows this because his mom said it is for sure, for sure. He does not like salad. I do like the onions in it. I eat them a lot. But I did not eat the salad. I just eat the chicken, because the chicken goes with the salad. And I don't eat the salad. JJ just started kindergarten. I ask him what preschool is like before kindergarten. He tells me, I was in green room with Miss Bethany and I don't remember her name lady. There were three race cars. More blocks than a number he knows. Later, I talked to J.J.'s mom, Tanette Powell, and she told me a very different story about J.J.'s time in preschool. She says last January, she was in the car on the way to a meeting. They called my husband, and my husband called me, and they and my husband said, we need to pick up J.J. And I said, pick him up. And they, he said, yeah, they said he threw a chair and he needs to go home. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, that he threw a chair? Not saying that he can't do anything, but, I mean, he is... The little guy who I worry about because even if him and his brother, who's two years younger than him, if his brother hits him, he will cry. You know, very, very sensitive and um, not very aggressive at all. Still, as she exited the highway, she did a special form of mental gymnastics I believe is familiar to parents everywhere. I mean, you know, you automatically then you're thinking like, wow, like I failed as a parent. You know, it gets it was difficult. You went right there? You went to, I failed as a parent? I did. That's immediately where I went. When Tanette got to the school, the woman at the front desk gave her a form that said JJ threw a chair. She asked Tanette to sign it. So she did. We're not people who just say, you know, oh, blame the school or blame the teacher or, oh, it's somebody else's problem. I mean, we immediately looked at what do we need to do to right the ship? You know, this, this is not okay. I mean, we told him, like, you know, you're going to go to your room. And I talked to him about everything. And, you know, we thought, okay, this he seems like he understood. So I thought, okay, this is a one-time thing. Never happen again. And then in the same week, uh, JJ was at school for about 30 minutes. And they called me. They said that he had been crying at the breakfast table. And they didn't know why he was crying. That they kept asking him why he was crying. And he would not tell them why he was crying. And then um, he pushed a chair again. And 
neither of the time he didn't hit anybody, um, but of course he could have. JJ was sent to his room again. No cartoons, no fruit snacks. A couple weeks after that, JJ spit on another kid. He got sent home again. Tanette asked for more information this time, and there was a long back and forth about the definition of spit on. It was not projectile, more like dribble. And at home, they did the same routine. You're going to go to your room, no treats. But Tanette worried JJ didn't seem to understand that when he was bad at school, being sent home was a punishment. Tanette didn't think he got that connection. I don't. I, I think I think he almost saw it as a good thing. Where yes, it was sad because mommy wasn't happy with me, but at the same time, when I picked them up at school, they're not running away from me, they're running to me. Do you know what a suspension is? I don't know. Have you heard that word before? Mm-hmm. Yes. And what does it mean? I forgot, but I do have Captain America. He's the guy with the shield. Captain what? Captain America. So, yeah, I don't think he got it. And of course he didn't. He was four years old at the time. To me, it sounds crazy to suspend a four-year-old. Like, there has got to be a better way to get your message across. It didn't seem like it was messing him up or anything. JJ didn't seem traumatized. It just didn't look like it was working. Then, after the third time he was suspended, Tanette started to feel like there was only one explanation for why it wasn't working. And it wasn't her parenting or the school. It wasn't JJ. It was her. She was a problem student when she was a kid, and she felt like somehow she passed that on to her son. She disrupted class a lot, got in fights. I got in trouble all the time as a kid. I was suspended frequently. So when my kids started getting suspended, it's like... You You weren't suspended in preschool. Yes. Yes. I was suspended and expelled from preschool. Mm-hmm. Like three, yes. four years old. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so when I see my own kids getting suspended, you know, from school, you know, I my kids are me, you know. So I got in trouble a lot when I was little. My, you know, my kids are me. It doesn't matter if the situation's different. It doesn't even matter. They're just me. It had mattered greatly to Tanette that the situation would be different for her kids. She spent the last decade taking one enormous step after another away from her childhood. Her dad was in prison when she was a kid. Her children have a father. Her mom never had enough money. She and her husband moved to Omaha so Tanette's husband could be in the Air Force. They have a steady income, four bedrooms, and a lawn. Tanette went into kindergarten knowing she was a bad kid. And she lived up to that reputation all the way through school. But my kids seem so different. You know, they seem like, my kids, they're so good. You know, they, they're so happy. They're so full of life. Um, they just seemed a lot different than I did at three and four. And they, they're so well-behaved at home and in public. When we go to restaurants and any of these places like that, anywhere we take them to the mall, Um, anywhere people are just always stopping us and saying how are your kids so well behaved so the fact that that was not very consistent at school just broke my heart a few weeks after JJ was first suspended Tanette took him to a birthday party and this is where at this point remember I'm I'm feeling really low on myself like as my parenting skills and so I go to this birthday party and it's for his friends 
one of his little friends and all the parents are kind of talking all the women parents and we're talking about the preschool and some of them are saying things that they like and don't like and all these different things and then I said well JJ's been suspended and they were like suspended and I'm like yeah and they said they suspend kids you know they were shocked and I said absolutely I said he's been suspended and I started telling them all the things that he had done um and then one parent's like I wonder why my kid hasn't been suspended and I'm like hmm you know what what so then she says well my son you know he hit this kid on purpose and they had to rush that kid to the hospital and all I got was a phone call and I was like hmm and one after another, they kept telling me different stuff. My kid did this. My kid did that. My kid bit somebody. My kid, all these things. And my kids, they're the all the same age, all the same class. And only JJ had been sent home. So I was like, what is going on? That's when I thought to myself, something is not right. The other parents were white at this birthday party? The other parents were white. Um, it was three other parents and myself. And they were white. Um, and where we live, the majority of the kids are white. And I'm not a person who's does that. No, everything's against black people. Or I don't wake up and look for situations where there's discrimination or racism or any of that. I mean, so I wasn't, oh, they're just doing this because my kids are black. I had no reason to believe that. And after that birthday party, it forced me to consider it. After the birthday party, Tanette's younger son, Joa, got suspended. Joa was three, though just barely three. He just had his birthday that week. Tanette writes for a local Omaha parenting blog called Mamaha. She wrote a post with the headline, Is My Black Preschooler Just Another Statistic? I reached out to the preschool, and they did not want to comment or even allow me to talk to the director of the school. But Tanette's post got picked up by the Washington Post, and she started getting dozens of messages, especially from Black parents all over the country. In every part, every little sector, just saying that this has happened to me and I thought I was by myself. Tanette was very much not by herself. This is not a new conversation for lots of Black and Latino parents, noticing that their kids seem to be punished more harshly than white kids. That's not new. What is new is that some academics and activists have been taking these stories and attaching them to a new provocative term, the school-to-prison pipeline. The idea is that what's happening to Tanette's son is happening to lots of kids of color all over the country. And once those kids are old enough, the excessive punishment in school really messes them up and makes them much more likely to wind up in prison. Yeah, I mean, you'd hear stories from advocates who would talk about a school-to-prison pipeline. Michael Thompson is the director of the Council of State Government's Justice Center. It's a nonpartisan, think-tanky type place. And Thompson kept hearing that term, school-to-prison pipeline. His job is to advise lawmakers on crime policy. So he was getting asked a lot, is this a real thing? Are Black and Latino kids really punished more in school and ending up in prison because of it? seemed a little far-fetched to Michael Thompson. Um, you know, I think everything's more complicated than that. Thompson likes numbers. He enjoys being in close proximity to Microsoft Excel. And this is exactly the kind of assignment he does not like because there are not consistent numbers on discipline in schools. Every school is different, every district, every state. 
And then Michael Thompson learned about Texas. Texas, somewhat miraculously, had followed every single public school student from seventh grade through graduation, the seventh graders of 2000, 2001, 2002. And they had documented everything. Report cards, if the kid was poor, Asian, switched schools, gotten in trouble, followed them all the way through graduation. So Thompson could ask the researchers in College Station at Texas A&M, how many white kids were suspended? For what? How many times? Which schools? I was just... All these numbers, I mean, I, I, the image I had was these guys in Texas A&M with white lab coats. Um, we would joke that all the lights would dim in College Station each time they would run an analysis of this thing because it was such a massive data set. The lab coats peered down at a million students' lives. The schools they attended, how they did, when they got in trouble. And they determined that African-American and Hispanic students were twice as likely to receive an out-of-school suspension than their white peers for their first offense. When they looked at African-American boys in Texas, 83% were suspended at least once. And usually, they were suspended a lot more than once. That includes anything a school calls suspension. But still, take 10 black boys, two of them made it through middle and high school without being suspended. And what kind of infractions were they getting suspended for? Most of the time, these were not for big things, like hitting a teacher or bringing a weapon to school. They were for things like disrespect, insubordination, willful defiance, the kind of incident that often begins when an angry kid won't take his hat off. Okay, and one more striking thing you could see in the Texas numbers. Kids who were suspended were much more likely to be arrested outside of school, three times as likely to come into contact with the juvenile justice system. Uh, to be honest, it was sort of a, you know, kind of a little bit of a spine tingling moment because um, I kept thinking about how the advocates had been saying this is such a, a common event. And I was thinking like, this is going to, my instant reaction was, this is going to give a whole lot more credibility to this conversation than we've ever had before. They're right. You're, you're, I mean, what you're saying is like, you've, you've just found that they're right. Yeah, at that point, uh, that's right. The idea of suspending a young person for bad behavior. What is that? A kid who's disrespectful or insubordinate does not want to be in class. So you suspend them? Just saying that out loud, that sounds weird, right? A couple years ago, the state of Maryland wrote a law. State legislators sat down and wrote this law that says you cannot suspend students for being truant. If a kid skips school, you can't punish him by telling him you can't come to school. They needed a law to make that clear. I talked to a sociologist named Pedro Nagera who told me that over the last few decades, suspensions have become the go-to move in response to disruptive behavior for everyone, actually, but especially black and Hispanic kids. Denying them learning time, which is, the I think, the most uh, ridiculous part of it. And because of the Texas numbers, we now know that those same kids are at a much higher risk of being arrested. So is there a connection here? One way to look at this is just that our society gives tougher punishments to Black and Hispanic kids when they are JJ's age, when they're in preschool, and when they're in high school, and when they're old enough to go to prison. The issue is not school. It's just racism. But Nagara says school is an important part of this picture. And here's the theory he laid out for me. You suspend a kid, he misses school, he finds it hard to catch up, 
He feels frustrated, falls behind. And maybe just as important, he learns he is bad. Because he feels bad when he's in school, he acts bad. There's this assumption that if we get rid of the bad people, that the good people will be able to learn, the good people will be safe. Well, what we continue to ignore is that we are producing the bad people. We're producing um, in school the bad behavior. Producing it through the system of punishment that convinces some kids that they're bad. In May 2011, Michael Thompson got a meeting with the Attorney General of the United States. And he showed him the Texas numbers. And two months later, the Attorney General and the Secretary of Education were standing together at a press conference about discipline in schools. They started gathering their own numbers from schools all over the country this time. And those numbers were worse, even in preschool. In March this year, the Department of Education issued a report that said Black children make up 18% of preschoolers, but they make up 48% of preschool children suspended more than once. When I found that, it was the same month as the birthday party. And I saw the story, and it well, it just said that uh, you know Black children are suspended at... Um, much higher rates. So you think I'm thinking to myself like in the same few months that my kids are being suspended, I go to this birthday party and then I see this report. I asked Tanette what the report meant to her, and she found it hard to summarize. So many things. First when I saw the report, it made me feel like like my kids were a target. It just felt like they were a target. You know, it felt like my kids is this something that I have to worry about forever? You know, could is this not something that, you know, I could just say was this one-time little thing? It's like something that I always have to be aware of and always have to think about and I always have to be more involved in the next parent in my kids' lives at school because of these studies. And then second, the report just kind of made me feel like maybe I wasn't as bad. She's talking about herself there, as a kid. Remember, Tanette was a problem student herself, preschool through high school graduation. Maybe I could have been, you know, maybe since there's such this overwhelming number, maybe that meant that maybe they weren't, the teachers weren't always doing the right thing. Even as she's saying that, Tanette isn't quite sure she believes it. She remembers being bad. She flipped over a desk in class one time. That happened. But she also remembers that after getting suspended in preschool, she walked into kindergarten fully convinced the teacher was the enemy. That never went away. All those times she was suspended, she didn't come back less angry, ready to obediently follow directions. It was the opposite. Tanette says, I went into kindergarten knowing I was bad. I went into first grade knowing I was terrible. And it just went up from there. Anna Jaffe Wald. Coming up, two ambitious, totally interesting, and completely opposite attempts to do discipline differently in schools. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, Discipline in Schools. Is it working? Is it messing kids up? One of our producers, Hannah Jaffe-Wald, has been looking into that for months. And in this half of our program, we look at two approaches to discipline that teachers are trying in schools in poor urban neighborhoods. There's a pattern that teachers see in a lot of these schools. 
the patterns this. Kids walk in on day one. They're already stressed out by the environments they come from. And they act out. So they get punished. They get the message that they're bad. They come to hate school. They act out some more. Like, I had a kid throw a bathroom stall door out the window from the third floor. And I got in trouble because I let him go to the bathroom. Katie Furr first taught at a middle school in New York City and Washington Heights with tons of kids who acted up. There were fights. It didn't really feel like anybody was in charge except this one eighth grader. <laughs> um, he actually yelled down the hall one day, I run this mother. Um, and I realized he did. Often she would just lose control of her class because of this kid named Christopher, curly-haired 14-year-old with braces, who gave her more trouble than anybody else in the class. Like, one day, Christopher left class to go to the bathroom, and Ms. Furr took his coat, and she locked it in a closet with all the other kids' coats. There was a school policy in that school to lock up coats like that, make it harder for the kids to leave school in the middle of the day. He came back in, and he was like, where's my coat? And one of the other kids was like, oh, Ms. Ms. Furr locked it in the closet. And he was like, you steal my stuff, I'm gonna steal your stuff. He walked over to my desk, he's taking staplers, he's throwing papers, he's like throwing stuff around the room, he's putting stuff in his like backpack and his pockets. And the security guard came in and he didn't really know what to do. And I mean, Christopher's like running circles around the security guard. You know, my post-its falling out of his pants pocket. It was just ridiculous. The reaction to the kind of chaotic public school where Learning is interrupted a lot, and so kids fall further behind. Two decades ago, some teachers launched one of the biggest recent experiments in American education, a whole movement of charter schools designed for poor minority kids. The idea is that the classrooms are rigorous, high standards, long school days. When it comes to discipline, they are strict, they're orderly, they are hypervigilant. There's a slogan they use, they sweat the small stuff, so things never get to the point they did in Ms. first class. These kinds of charter schools have now been around long enough that the first generation of students who went through them are grown. And some of those students now look back on their time in those schools and they think about, did it work? What worked? What didn't work? In this act, Act 2, we're calling this act, the guinea pig becomes the scientist. Kind of talked with one of those students who grew up and decided to become a teacher himself. Being a human subject is a thing that ranks pretty high on Rousseau Mies's Who I Am list. He grew up in Roxbury, Mass. His parents are Haitian immigrants. And at age 10 years old, Rousseau became a human test subject when his mom signed him up to be part of the first sixth grade class at the Academy of the Pacific Rim. I like to think of it as like first generation charter school. Students are silent. Students are, you know, sitting up straight. There's just no room in a classroom for students like not following directions or following the rules or doing what they are asked to do. And like version 1.0 of that was like my second day of school, I got suspended, like sent home because I celebrated because I got 100 on a math quiz, like one of those math minutes. You got suspended for celebrating a for math talking, talking out of turn. What'd you say? Yes. Yes. I got 100 on my math minutes, but I said it out loud. Suspension. Yeah. Rousseau's teachers had spent years coming up with the theories that created that first week of school. They wanted to close the achievement gap with long school days and high expectations. 
They had lots of slogans, no excuses, zero tolerance for misbehavior. And Rousseau's teachers believed this approach would motivate the kids to behave, which it did for some kids. And for some kids, it did not. I was definitely one of the, um, how to put this? I got in trouble a lot. <laughs> like, a lot. Um, and so... What kinds of things were you doing? This is like impulse control, talking, uh, talking, 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 talking. <laughs> yeah, that was most of it. A few of Rousseau's childhood teachers went on to start their own schools, went on to scale up their vision of rigorous, no-excuses schools for America's poor and minority students. Rousseau's former teachers now write books and talk about the mistakes they made early on and all the important lessons they took from those mistakes. Things like, don't shame students by making them stand with their nose to the chalkboard for the rest of the class. Don't make them bark like a dog. It is not best practice to throw chairs in order to get kids to see you're serious. And when a kid is late, do not do what a teacher did to Rousseau. It's like, where were you? And I'm like, you know, like, sorry. Like, you know, I didn't realize. And then he's like, get out. You know, he like yells at me and screams at me to leave the classroom. And then I get up and I'm walking and he goes, walk faster. And like screams at me to, to walk faster. I like was just like. So, like, like, just, like, distraught, breathing heavy, like, crying, like, just, like, uncontrollable anger and rage at that time. It felt like that. You're still mad about it. I'm really angry about it. Like, really angry about it. To this day, I can't say this guy's name. Like, I can't even, like, yeah. <laughs> it's really bad. For Rousseau, there was a big upside to his charter school experience. He got into college. He doesn't think that would have happened otherwise. And it gave him the life he has today. But there were downsides, too. For one, lots of kids couldn't hack it, left the school. Less than half of Rousseau's sixth grade class stayed till graduation. And some of the charter movement's leaders say too many of those who did make it to college ended up dropping out. One reason for that? After all the strict control in high school, they floundered when they had no structure in college. When Rousseau aged out of being a human test subject, he pretty much immediately moved over to the other side and became a teacher. He got his first gig when he was still in college, a sort of teaching internship at a charter school in Rochester. He was 21 years old, and he finally had the distance to see things from the outside. He chaperoned his first field trip to D.C., and it kind of freaked him out. And it was just, like, so intense. There, like, kids were single-file lines out of buses, single file lines lined up in front of a bathroom at a rest stop. Um, monitors had to go into the bathrooms. Kids had to silently use the bathroom, wash their hands. And Rousseau noticed that the kids were getting noticed. Grown-ups around them were smiling, pointing them out. I think that there's some of it that's just like kids and teenagers. Wow, I've never seen a group of teenagers like silently walk into a bathroom. Cause like, who sees that? But also like, I think there's a race thing that plays in and, and there too, right, where you're like, wow, look at like a group of like minority children in a rest stop sort of being like behaving. Rousseau was good with kids, especially the problem kids. When he graduated from college, he got a job through his charter connections. And Rousseau proceeded to be maybe the only rookie teacher in America who did not struggle with classroom management. 
seriously, he was a genius at controlling the kids. The thing Rousseau struggled with was letting go of control. By this point, the strict charters had pulled back some on the extreme discipline model. The slogans were still zero tolerance, no excuses, but Rousseau also heard a new one, power versus purpose. Make sure when you are exerting your power, there's a reason for it. Is there a reason kids need to walk quietly into a rest stop on a field trip? Is there a reason you need that kid to unpack his book bag silently? There might be, but, you know, ask the question. Rousseau says school felt so different than he remembered. I saw kids laugh and have fun in school. I saw kids learn about commas through, like, one of my coworkers, Angar. He came in as Barack Obama. And, like, I saw that. I experienced students learn and, like, did really well on Rhode Island, the Rhode Island State Test, like, killed the state. But they were, like, having such a good time. And was that the first time that you had seen that? Yeah, yeah, it was. And you were like, oh my god, school can be this way. It can be fun, and it was crazy to me. Rousseau and I talked in a small workroom at a school, and he had to interrupt our interview because he said he needed to help with a transition. I didn't know what that meant, but I followed him into the hallway, and about 30 kids walked single-file line, completely silently, out of their classroom, down the hall, down three flights of stairs, to lunch. This is what that sounds like. 30 or so 11 and 12-year-old children are streaming past me. Down the stairs, single file. No arms are flapping, no mouths are open, no one is tripping or falling, all the way to the cafeteria. That was a pretty silent line. Yeah, well, somebody earned a demerit for talking in that line. Somebody earned a demerit just now? from me, yeah. I did not hear any talking. I listened back to try to find the infraction, and I think it must be this. Yeah, that creepy feeling Rousseau had watching the kids at the rest stop, I had that feeling. And it was super confusing because Rousseau had just spent an hour telling me about these eye-opening experiences he'd had, seeing kids laugh and Barack Obama and how he could never stay quiet as a kid. So we talked about this for a while, and he says he's ambivalent about how controlling his school was, about all the ways his school today is a lot like the school he attended as a kid. But the longer he teaches, he says, the better he understands a thing that he did not get as a kid about why his teachers were so harsh. And that is that they were scared. They were scared of losing control of the class. He knew that. That part was obvious to him, even when he was a teenager. But what he didn't realize at the time was they were also scared for him. He knows this now because he is a teacher of mostly poor, mostly black students like he was. And he feels this for his students. He's afraid for their well-being. He's afraid of the odds they will not graduate. He's afraid they won't get to college. Afraid they'll get suspended or arrested for horsing around, being rowdy at the wrong place at the wrong time. So Rousseau finds himself saying things teachers said to him. And it's like when you're a parent and you hear your mother's voice coming out of your mouth and you know what you are saying is such a worthless thing to say to a child, but you say it anyway. Do you not get why I'm on this level? Like, let me get you on the level that I'm on. Like, this is why I'm freaking out right now. I'm so, like, like worried um, because I look at them and I see myself where I see my friends. 
You know, some of those people are like in prison right now. Russo wants to be able to loosen his grip some as a teacher, allow kids more freedom. He's trying to do that. He takes tiny steps, but he says his fear gets in the way. Act three, the talking cure. So after the Texas numbers came out, and then more studies on punishments in schools, lots of educators and policymakers became convinced that a lot of the discipline that schools administer is not working, especially suspensions. So if you don't want to suspend kids, what do you do instead? Well, one alternative that's talked about a lot that the Obama administration and others are pushing for schools is something called restorative justice. Now, the model for this comes from the criminal justice system, where offenders and victims will sit down in a mediation and they basically try to talk it out and find a way to restore the harm done by the crime. That's why it's restorative. So if this is the answer for schools, we wanted to see what it looks like when you try that in a school setting. Hannah spent last spring semester at a public school called Lyons Community School in Brooklyn. It's a small middle and high school founded nearly eight years ago to attempt this approach with kids. Just a quick note, the kids in this story are minors and some of the names have been changed. Also, if you're listening to this on the Internet or on podcasts, there is cursing that we have not beeped uh, in what you're about to hear. If you prefer a beeped version of our program, you can get it at our website, thisamericanlife.org. Okay, here's Hannah. I was popular at Lions. It was a problem. Kids would see me walking around with my microphone, international symbol that someone is about to be made famous, and there'd be a scramble. Is this an interview? Some very quick process of natural selection would take place. A dozen kids would get pushed aside, and I'd be left standing with the champions. So you guys are both what grade at Lions? Ninth. Uh, how do you like it? It's it good. Are you going to say everything at the same time? No. no. <laughs> Stop! <laughs> you guys uh, both started this year? Yeah. Having to move a conversation like this into an interview about restorative justice was a little bit of a bummer. Kids at Lions don't necessarily know that term, nor do they want to talk about it. But when you ask them what their school is like, they have a lot to say about that, mostly what it feels like here. The teachers listen to you, and we have a voice. In my um, middle school, they would just suspend us and whatever, call it a day. But Lions, like, we talk about the problem and stuff like that. I had one little altercation, but me and a good friends now, like... Because we all talked about the yeah. situation, it was stupid. After the fight, we all like got in a circle and then we just talked about the situation. Circles, that's a big thing here. They sit in circles after a fight. Circles are where conflict is resolved, consequences are discussed, feelings are shared. The kids at Lions get the message that talking is how you are successful. A beefy ninth grader named Alex with an afro and dimples walked me through in detail how he calms himself down when he gets frustrated in class. And then he told me, Lions is what made me. I ask him what he means by that. I, I wouldn't think I'll, I'll talk to you right now how I'm talking to you. What, what do you mean the way that you're talking to me now? Like, like, what? So friendly, like, I could keep on talking and talking. If, if I would have never been in Lions, I would have never, probably would have never been comfortable talking to you. You wouldn't even be sitting here with me. No. <laughs> you just would have, like, walked away when I asked to talk yeah, to you. I probably would have, yeah. Later, Alex told me I wouldn't have walked away nicely either. His teachers confirmed this. 
all this talking at Lions can just look like total chaos. There are kids in the hallway at Lions all the time. There are fights. There's random screaming in between classes. Russo's charter school had zero tolerance. Lions has a tolerance for disruption that rivals a paintball arena. One day, I found a teacher and dean trying to game out how to approach a student who told a female teacher to suck his dick. The kid said this in class and then walked out. Were you mad? Um, like, mad at him. So, I mean, feels so bad for him that he can't control himself. Like, why is he yelling at me? I've only ever been, like, on his side. Like, what... What is up with that? It just makes me so sad. I, was, I don't really have it in me to get mad at him about it. But even though he's telling you, suck my dick. That was just like a performance. I really didn't take it personally. I mean, it was really just kind of like... Like out of the probably like 100 times somebody's told me to suck their dick. I don't think they ever meant it personally toward me. <laughs> That's happened to you 100 times? Probably. <laughs> These two teachers talk about what it means that the student said those words for an hour. They then speak with the student for another hour, the student and his mom, the student and other students, the student one-on-one again. It is a thorough investigation into the meaning and effect of the words suck my dick on the kid, on the teacher, and on the class. But that's kind of the idea, that kids are a long-term project, and over time, angry, hard kids become people who can explain themselves. At Lyons, they call this transformation being lionized. The assistant principal was telling me about this, about how kids get lionized, and a ninth grader named Nelson happened to be just sitting with us. So she said, like Nelson, in sixth grade. He was constantly talking, constantly throwing things, constantly getting kicked out of class, constantly. Nelson is not squirming or grimacing listening to this. The feeling is more of a loving parent teasing a grown child about what an awful teenager he was. But of course, what's so remarkable is Nelson is still a teenager. And this is not his parent, it's his principal. He didn't make it through a class, rarely. Um, Even when I had you in small group in sixth grade. It was true. Some of it. (laughs) You remember, it's not like you don't remember. Not in that small group, the small group, I wasn't there. That's not true. (laughs) It's not true. You've selected memory. It's not true. Nelson tells me, just ask Espy what I was like in sixth grade. Espy is Dan Espinoza, a dean at the school. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, As a sixth grader, he was a very, very angry kid. And even even through most of his middle school, he would be a kid that would just, like, wander the halls for hours, like, on end. No one could talk to him. No one could stop him. Don't touch me. Get off me. Like... He would be like, these effing deans. Like, he would always say that. One day, a girl said something nasty to Nelson, and he started screaming at her, and then chasing her out of the classroom. Espy stood by the door, so Nelson couldn't run after her. (laughs) And he said, he looked at me, and he was like, Dan, I swear to God, I'm about to punch you in the groin right now. Like, he said that to me, um, if you don't let go of the door. So I put my foot in the door so that he couldn't open it, and he, he knew it, and he, like, he stopped it at my foot, and then he just pulled harder. And I was, <laughs> it hit me right in the face. When I asked him how hard, Espy said, it didn't break my jaw or anything. So that was sixth grade. Nelson is in ninth grade now, lionized. I mean, like, I could, you know, tell Nelson, like, Nelson, I love you. He'll be like, I love you, too. And, like, you know, it's just a very um, 
good. Yeah, it's a very positive relationship at this point. Like, I really don't worry about Nelson. Like, I don't worry, like, I think he's going to be okay. Schools, like any institution, I guess, tend to attract believers. Some more fervent than others, but Lyons is a building of believers. This is the way to do things, and it's the right way. Which is why I want to tell you about what happened on May 7th last spring, something that threatened to reverse years of progress with Nelson and had lots of teachers in the school questioning what they're doing here. On May 7th, two teachers named Chelsea and Jesse took a group of ninth graders on a field trip. It was an art class. They were going to Manhattan to look at public art. And even on the walk to the train, kids were noticing public artwork. And it was like a beautiful day. We got on the train. Everything was like pleasant and calm. Chelsea's at one dorm at the other. Kids are standing in the aisle. Uh, Most of the seats were taken when we got on. You know, I remember standing with like kind of a group of kids around me and we were all just kind of chatting and, you know, who they're dating or just talking about life. Everything seemed so calm. I think we're on the train for two stops and the train doors open and someone comes from behind Nelson. So Nelson is standing at the middle pole of the train and someone pushes past him, kind of like, you know, shoulders him out of the way and steps off the train. And Nelson responds by saying, you know, say, excuse me. And the man now who's outside of the train turns around and starts cursing at Nelson. I don't remember exactly what he said, something like, who the fuck are you? Or shut the fuck up or something very aggressive, very unnecessary. I mean, Nelson didn't say it in a nice way. He was just like, say, excuse me. Definitely not within his place to be speaking to an older man that way, but still not horrible. Chelsea says the man was big. Big enough that she wouldn't have messed with him. And big enough that Nelson says when he bumped into him, it was a real shove. It's rude people on the train. Like, they'll just bump into you without saying excuse me or sorry. I told him to say excuse me. You could have said excuse me. And then he said something right back? Said fuck you. I said fuck you too. There are a lot of versions of what happened next. Some students say the guy reached to grab Nelson to hit him. Some of them say the guy just stepped forward. Teachers and students, everyone says, at that point, the kids, a large group of them, moved in on the man. It was kind of like slow motion, and I could see just like this, like a volcano erupting. And I just like immediately put my arms across the door because he was outside and they were inside and I wanted to keep them inside and I wanted to keep him outside. The doors are gonna close soon. They're just yelling, they can yell, and then we'll move on. And Chelsea put her arms across the doors to keep the kids behind her, inside the train. But for some reason, the doors did not close. The train did not move. It definitely escalated very quickly. They were like, they were trying to hit him over me. They threw a bottle, somebody spit. I mean, it was really gross. Jesse, meanwhile, the other teacher, was at the other end of the train car, so he couldn't see what was going on. But he stepped out onto the platform, and he sees this man there, screaming. And Chelsea is between him and the students. It appeared that he was reaching over, trying to to grab a student. He's saying something like, you know, I want this fucking kid, or like, give me this fucking kid, or something like that. Um, So I was really concerned that, like, he was mentally unstable. And so 
I ran, um, I actually like sort of like, so I slipped myself like between him and Chelsea. I was facing him. And so I actually saw him reach into his pocket and I got really, I was like, oh my God, does this guy have like some sort of weapon? I actually like put my hands on his chest to push him away. And he, right when I did that, we locked eyes and he said, I'm a cop, I'm a, I'm a cop, I'm a cop. When I asked the kids about this moment later, a bunch of them told me the whole thing was so confusing until right then. Like the whole time they were wondering, what's this random guy doing starting with us? And then when they found out he's a cop, it was like, oh, that's why he's acting like that. But Jesse and Chelsea both said this is where they got confused. The man made more sense to them as a crazy guy than as an officer. A plain clothes officer who was now standing on a subway platform with his badge saying he got hit and he wanted everyone off the train. Yeah, he's like, like, give me this kid. I want that one. Give me the tall one, the short one. Who are like, you know, huddled on the platform. He's like picking. He had one student and was like, you know, asking for more. He was very, very, very angry. You know when someone's so angry that like spit is coming out of their mouth? Yeah, that's what he, you know, that's what his, when he was talking to us and talking to the kids, he was so, he was like filled with fury. Jesse says the cop pulled aside Nelson, Alex, that kid who told me lions made him capable of talking to me, and a boy named Kamani. Jesse tried to stay close to the group. I'm saying, wait, what do you, why do you want them? And at some point in there, I made it clear. I said, I'm their teacher. You know, they're, we're, they're with me on a class trip. We need to talk about this. And he's saying, you know, I'm going to get six more officers here in, in, in a second. And he really did. Like, he called and there were like a bunch more uh, plainclothes officers there really quickly. Jesse pressed on. And the more he recounted this to me, I realized, oh, he's trying to do restorative justice with the guy. He was in teacher mode. He's got 25 of his students standing before him. So without thinking, he does what he knows how to do. You know, let's talk about this. Um, there must be a way we can, like, we can work this out. You don't have to arrest them. I have a whole class here. Like, and you thought, like, I just need to explain to him yeah. what's going on. If I could explain to him, we're on a class trip, and whatever happened must have been some big un- misunderstanding. Maybe he didn't know you were a cop. Maybe you shouldn't have, like, cursed at him right away. Maybe he shouldn't have said, say excuse me, with that particular tone. And, like, if you two can, like, if I can help you two see that right now, then everything can be okay. And he wasn't trying to hear any of that. He actually then threatened me and said that if I don't get away that he was going to arrest me. Restorative justice meet plain old criminal justice. The cop was not about to sit in a circle. He was going to make some arrests. And the kids geared into action. They shot video, started calling mothers and aunts and girlfriends. Someone made sure to get their backpacks. Nelson's classmate Brianna got Nelson's phone out of his pocket while he was handcuffed. I asked Brianna how she knew to do that when someone was arrested. She was quiet for a couple seconds, like she was trying to figure out what exactly I meant by that question. And then her face cleared up and she said, oh, I live here. I live in Brooklyn. I got, immediately got the sense that seeing their friends in handcuffs was nothing new to them at all. And that's like a really scary thought. And it's like something that like I know, but like to see it in that moment where it's so clear, like no one is shocked. About what's happening yeah, right People here. are angry, but no one is sh- surprised. 
and seeing how normal it is for some kids is, yeah, yeah that's like scary. The cop arrested Nelson and Kamani. The rest of the kids watched. Nelson was charged with disorderly conduct. Kamani was charged with a felony for assaulting an officer. The NYPD declined multiple requests for an interview or any kind of response. The officer, his name is Guillermo Lozano, would not talk to me. He also didn't show up for Nelson's court dates. He did provide the courts with a written statement that says after a heated verbal exchange with Nelson, the officer identified himself. Kamani, the statement says, then punched him in the right eye and yelled, fuck that. Kamani denies this, but in court, he took a plea deal. All of the witnesses I spoke with say the cop did not identify himself until after the scuffle. Two people said at that point he did appear to have a mark on his face. Nelson and Kamani were booked and spent the night in jail. They were both 16. Everybody in there for different stuff. So, like, at that point, you just feel like you just got to watch over yourself because, like, it's dangerous people in there. You just got to be cool. Was this other kids or grown-ups? Grown-ups. To me, they was a little crazy because, like, they just doing random shit and, like, crazy stuff. Crazy stuff, like grown people getting caught with guns and stuff. It's just weird, because you're just looking at them like, damn. I ain't, I ain't sleep. Yeah, it seems like it'd be hard to sleep. I was up the whole night. Did you just sit up the whole night? I had my hoodie over my head, just thinking. Were you scared? I, 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 not really. Like, I, I kind of was, but like, I wasn't. I asked Nelson what he was thinking about all night. If he was a cop, why he told me fuck him? Because like, he could have said something else if he that smart enough to be a cop. Like what? Like, I don't know. Like, sorry, my fault. Like, it just made no sense. He a grown-ass man, and I'm a little kid. Like, he should have just kept going. When Nelson got out the next morning, he came straight to school. He said he wanted to let his teachers know he was okay. The principal of Lyons, Taeko Onishi, sends out a weekly email to staff, and that week it described the arrest and said, There's an impending court case, so I won't get into too much detail, but it was one of those cases of a cop, undercover, responding completely inappropriately to our students. Our students then responding inappropriately back. Clearly the cop was in the wrong, but equally clearly many of our students really struggled to make the best of choices when faced with an emotionally charged situation. Of course, Lyons staff discussed the incident exhaustively. I was sick. I was just, I mean, it's like your worst nightmare. Assaulting an officer sounds so bad. Espy, the dean who tells Nelson he loves him, could not stop imagining Nelson in jail. He imagined Nelson getting his prints taken, standing before a judge, seeing himself as a criminal. And Espy played out the alternate future he could now see for Nelson. Basically, he had the same moment Tanette had with J.J., seeing a path laid out before him, seeing him targeted by strangers who don't see him for who he is. It made Espy furious. But other teachers at Lyons took the news of the arrest differently. Kamani's English teacher, Cindy Black, said she kept thinking about all the times Kamani acted out in her class, blew up through books on the floor. And she kept wondering, is what we're doing working for the kids? 
And so when I first heard about what had happened, my immediate reaction was, oh no, you know, like we've, it's our fault. We've allowed him to get away with too much. We should have been suspending him more. We should have been more black and white. We shouldn't have turned away when he did these outrageous things, right? We should have held him more accountable. And we didn't do any of that stuff. And so it's our fault. He's done something now. He spent the night in jail. It's it's because of us. It's because of me. Here's Chelsea. Because maybe if we were a different kind of school, they would not have acted that way on a trip. I don't know if kids would have felt the freedom to act that way. Freedom to say excuse me to a stranger in a rude tone, to throw stuff and to talk back. It seemed like the cops saw them as rowdy or threatening. What if they'd been more like Rousseau's students, quiet and in uniforms doing homework? Maybe this whole thing could have been avoided. But Espy reminded everyone, wait, the cops said fuck you. Kamani only got involved when the cops started with Nelson. We're going to tell him he should have held back? Like, are you kidding me? When his his friend is getting pulled by a plainclothes guy, like, how do you, I I just don't, because I know if I was there, I would be arrested. Because if someone's grabbing Nelson... And it's just a guy, like, I'm going to, so I would have been arrested. And this guy clearly had, uh, his, everybody around said, Nelson said, you could say, excuse me. Like, that's like the first thing Nelson said. And the first thing the guy says is, fuck you. I mean, and this is a kid who we're trying to um, teach, be patient, don't confront somebody, you know. And I thought he did a pretty good job. But once you say, fuck you to Nelson, I'm, you know. The restorative justice doesn't work beyond that point. Still, restorative justice is what the school does. So after Jesse and Chelsea got the rest of the class back to school, they sat them down in a circle. Here's Alex. You're talking about what, what happened at that day and what we could have did to, like, stop it. What could you guys have done to stop it? I don't, I don't know. We can't, we can't stop something like that. The police officer just took them for no reason. We can't stop. We can't change his mind. As Jesse tried to change his mind, he, he didn't want to change his mind. So your circle was about what you could do to stop it, but you felt like there was nothing that you could do to stop yeah, it? Yeah, I, I didn't really feel like telling nobody, so, you know, I didn't really feel like talking about it. In other words, nothing that we could do, nothing you teachers can do, would have stopped that. I heard this from a lot of kids. The feeling that your funky little system is cool when we're in school and all. But don't try to take it and apply it to our world. You're in over your head. Knowing how to talk their way through a conflict might help these kids someday in their jobs, with their friends, in their marriages, in all kinds of situations. But it did not keep them from getting arrested on a subway platform. So in that way, Lyons is failing to prepare kids for the world they live in. And if they're not preparing kids for the world they live in, they're not doing their job, right? Isn't that their job? Is that their job? This is the question I keep coming back to, thinking about all these stories. It's the same question Rousseau at his No Excuses Charter School is asking. What is the point of punishment in school? Is it to teach self-control? To get kids to be quiet so learning can happen? To prepare children to function as grown-ups in the world? to teach them how to avoid being arrested? If you want to know, is this working for the kids, you have to know what you're going for, right? Every year, teachers have 30 or 100 students. A lot of those kids will be disciplined. 
And getting it wrong, even once, can be haunting. For example, remember Christopher, the kid who ran around the classroom with his teacher's stapler and post-it notes coming out of his pockets everywhere? I tried to track Christopher down. I thought it might be interesting to hear what he remembered of the stapler, if he remembered his teacher. And I found him, just last month, in a Manhattan courthouse. He was being sentenced to six months at Rikers Island for burglary. Christopher's seventh grade teacher did not cause that. But when I told Ms. Furr, she got really quiet, ended our call kind of abruptly, and then wrote me this. I was so heartbroken to hear the news about Christopher's recent trouble. All the times I talked about behavior with him, I wish I would have talked about how quick I thought he was at math and how much I like to hear him read out loud. If you do speak to him, please tell him I'm glad to help in any way possible. Katie Furr has no idea if those things would have made any difference, and I don't either. And I wasn't able to reach the one person who might have something to say about that, because he has been removed from the community, something he's gone through many times before, starting at least as early as seventh grade. Hannah Jaffe Walk is one of the producers of our show. Our program today was produced by Nancy Updike with help from Ben Calhoun, Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Hana Joffrey Walt, Sarah Koenig, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Menkevar, Brian Reed, Robin Semyon, and Alyssa Ship. Our senior producer is Joey Snyder. Editing help today from Paul Tuff. Production help from J.P. Dukes. Seth Lund is our operations director. Emily Condon is our production manager. Elise Bergerson is our office manager. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Research help today from Christopher Swatala and Michelle Harris. Music help from Damian Grave. Special thanks today to Ta-Nehisi Coates, Joel Lovell, Rebecca DeCola, Robert Murphy, Nava at Shalom, Judge Elijah Williams, Jamal Bowman, Liz Fletcher, Judith Kafka, Ronald Butchhart, Kelly King, Kathy Brody, Lamar Shambly, Kathy Cohen, James Settle, Tom Ryder, Matt Lump, Janet Bass at the American Federation of Teachers, Amanda Pinto at the Achievement First Network, and the entire staff of the Lions Community School. The book I mentioned at the beginning of the show is reporter Elizabeth Green's book, Building a Better Teacher, How Teaching Works, and How to Teach It to Everyone. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, every day he spent as general manager of WBEZ included that very special and memorable moment when he would stand in the hallway and yell, I run this mother. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. Education, 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 education.